0: So, uh, there was a specific theme or area that I wanted to address tonight, and then <coughs> partly based on some of the questions last night and some of the interviews, etc., uh, it feels important to also weave other stuff into that based on <coughs> based on basically what you guys are going through and the diversity of your responses and, and etc. Uh, so... I hope that it weaves in gracefully to what I'm trying to say, and uh, it might feel like I'm spiralling around stuff, and <clears throat> I hope that's just okay. I also hope that it's not too long. Um, but clearly, clearly, uh, w- ev- everyone in this room, uh, myself included, has different background, different background. Uh, in terms of personal history, different psychological background, different practice background, different exposure to different teachings, all of that, all of that. Uh, And not only that, uh, a variety of predispositions as well, predispositions in terms of practice, predispositions in terms of view and attitude, Uh, approaches to practice, all all that, all that. So what that means is that... uh, Everyone's having a different retreat, in a way, and the teachings are landing in different places, and the practices land in different and, and all that changes. Um, so it it somehow feels important to, or, or that's obvious, it feels important to state it, and uh, try and address all that diversity somehow in, in, in uh, the teaching. <coughs> so we jump off from there, actually. Um attitudes, views, uh, preconceptions that we have uh, will profoundly affect our life. Profoundly affect our life. They, they in a way, colour and shape what we experience in life e- every day. So on a very gross uh, level, but also on, on a very, very subtle level, and we don't even realise it's going on. <clears throat> so, attitudes, views, preconceptions affect life and... Uh, the way life unfolds, and also practice, and the way practice unfolds, deeply. So, many in this room are from the Insight Meditation tradition, um, and in that tradition, i have touched on this a little bit, I think, but in that tradition, and uh, some Zen traditions, uh, two things get communicated, generally speaking. Generally speaking, a person either whether it's explicitly said or somehow imbibed, a person generally uh, walks away with two, two uh, meanings of, of something. One, uh, or two concepts, one is the concept of bare attention, and uh, the other one is a kind of idea to put down thought and put down, meaning let go of thought, but also in a way to denigrate thought and the value of thought, Uh, and seeing thought as kind of a problem in a way, or uh, being suspicious, at least, of its value. And so um, both of those concepts or strands in the teaching can be communicated explicitly or implicitly, and they're both really useful, actually, extremely useful. The concept of bear attention is very useful. Um, But like everything else, has its positive side and its, and its potential downside. So this bare attention that we talk about, especially in the insight meditation tradition, this kind of capacity to, of attention to meet experience very, very simply and directly, uh, so it seems, um, rawly, nakedly, that, that generally takes people years of practice. I mean, years to actually be able to do that and kind of get what that's about and feel in oneself as, oh yeah, this is beautiful, this is something really lovely, to do that. Uh, The simplicity of it, the directness of it, the vitality of it. And, uh, in in, in a way, that's um, a foundation for what we're doing here. It's very much a foundation for what we're doing here. And... Uh, it takes time to get that foundation. It takes time to be to feel like we're really able to meet experience, lovely experience, difficult experience, difficult emotions, all that. It takes time. It really takes time. We develop that, and in doing that, in trying to, trying to bring bare attention to experience, we. Uh, There, to some degree, definitely, we go underneath concepts. That's kind of what the teaching of bare attention is about. Underneath the veil of concepts of experience. Um, But in a way, is it enough? Is it enough? And I've brought this up before. Is it enough? Are we going underneath concepts enough? Is going underneath concepts really where we're trying to head to, in terms of emptiness and understanding? Sometimes with paying bare attention to experiences you've noticed all of you i think most of you from insight meditation retreats etc before is that what it brings is a kind of real vividness to experience when we meet it more directly uh, free or to a relative extent free of the veil of concepts there's a brightness some people come into interviews and they say the grass seems greener the sky looks bluer it's beautiful it's beautiful it's precious but Part of the potential downside is is that experiences, uh, appearances are becoming more vivid and, in a way, can actually lead to this uh, accepting of appearances even more. It's like appearances become primary. Experience becomes primary. And so there's this word in the tradition, suchness. Everyone come across this word, suchness? Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the Sanskrit is, tatata, ta, ta, or something like that, but... Um, Originally, if you read the original text, this word suchness was synonymous with the word emptiness. It has come to mean, in the tradition, the exact opposite of that, the exact opposite. So when generally teachers talk about suchness, or you read about it nowadays, and I remember <coughs> as a teenager reading um, Aldous Huxley, The Doors of Perception, and, and uh, Heaven and Hell, and those kind of books that one reads, when one explores in certain ways as a teenager. Um, uh, and, um, and he used it there, and th- this, you know, what was it? He was taking mescaline, or whatever, and the, the vividness, the beingness, the thingness of things was startling to him. Their, their, their essence of thingness, and he was calling that suchness. And that, I don't think he started it, but that, that use of the word started pervading Uh, the teachings, etc. But originally it meant completely the opposite. It meant the absence of that. It meant emptiness. The suchness of a thing was the absence of its thingness, of its essence, of its beingness, etc., etc. Now there are reasons for that that have to do with the way Buddhism spread from India, particularly to East Asia, to China and Japan. Um, But, though I find it fascinating, I'm not going to digress. I actually think it's very important, but I'm I'm not going to go too much into it. Um... Well, actually, just to say a little <laughs> um, talked about this balance of the middle way, and there's a sense of uh, kind of negating too much. We'll revisit this, kind of going too far with the emptiness into kind of nothingness, etc. And the possibility of, um, in a way, not doing that enough. And and the swing, individually there's a swing, but also within Buddhist traditions, and in one, one tradition, within one tradition, the historical swing. Too much? Not enough. And the kind of reactions to that. And the culture in Eastern Asian countries was was unlike India, with, where the philosophical milieu that the Buddha grew up in had a real strand of transcendence in it. The... the, 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 the Aim of a lot of the spirit was actually transcending the phenomenal world, going beyond, experiencing something beyond the senses that's transcendent to that. That was completely absent in Chinese and Japanese uh, spiritual milieu. Much more about the uh, isness of things, the, f- the moment of experience, that the, the, the uh, directness of the senses, the earthiness, etc. So when, when Buddhism moved to China and Japan, actually d- rejected it at first for different reasons. That was one of them. So it had to find its way back in. And then, uh, in a way, they took the Indian thing. Perhaps as going too far. And all of which is good, because this swing is actually healthy. But I don't know if that makes sense. It actually it profoundly influences the way the Dharma has arrived to the West. Because we've actually inherited a mixture. In, the, in this room, there's a big mixture. In the insight meditation is certain, a tradition, there's certainly a mixture. So that kind of thing we think, well, that's not really significant. I'm not really interested. I wouldn't have been interested in this at all a few years ago. But teaching so much and bumping into people's views and attitudes, one actually, where does this come from? And uh, Anyway. So we can have a notion with, of uh, bare attention, etc., of a kind of purity of perception. That somehow it's possible to... Uh, Aldous Huxley scrub the doors of perception till they're clean, and they see uh, reality as it is, things as they are, the world shining in its isness. And this is this, and that's that's it. And in that, the appearance can seem like a solid fact. It's, it's the appearance, and that's what we're trusting. And so, I, I will review this later. But. Um, uh, I'm not saying this always happens, I'm just saying uh, it's a potential way that things can unfold. And so sometimes one can have uh, a a sense of something like the talk last night, it was a very intellectual reasoning, etc. And one, given the choice, one doubts the reasoning and not the appearance. And appearances seem almost uh, unquestionable, and reasoning seems questionable and unbelievable. So that's... I'm not not saying it happens all the time, but that's a potential uh, reaction or or, or (coughs) thing that can come up. So sometimes we hear in the teaching, and again, it's kind of communicated, it's almost like, don't think about experience, just experience. Just experience. And in a way, um, what that kind of direct was is this faith in in what we see and what we experience. Uh, However... There's a problem there, and I, I've, I've voiced it before. It's that we sense inherent existence woven into our perceptions. So, if I'm trusting appearance, they, appearances come with a sense of inherent existence, to a degree. And uh, we, the, the delusion is, is in the seeing. It's it's fundamentally a problem. The problem is deep in the perception, in in the mind, in the perception. I said this before too. I don't feel. I mean, again, this is just an opinion. But I don't feel that we will actually uncover the full depth of understanding of emptiness, just trusting appearances and and experiences. Um, It's very difficult to to reach something like the lack of inherent existence of awareness, or the fact that there is no real present moment, or um, this process that we were talking about yesterday, that actually the process too, and the elements that make up the process, and the time that the process seems to happen in, none of that is real either very difficult if we're just trusting this bare attention something in experience will always appear to have inherent existence something, it's the, it's the nature of, actu- of actually experience uh, the default stream of experience and <clears throat> if it's not explicitly uh, kind of made clear to us or, or us to ourselves that this or that lacks inherent existence pretty much I feel we can safely assume that we're assuming inherent existence in things so. Excuse me, Rob. Yeah. Can
1: you define inherent
0: existence, please? I'm struggling. Yeah. Okay. To know how you're using it. Yeah. So um, I, I, this year I didn't define it till late, but last year I didn't define it till later in the retreat. This year I defined it right at the beginning. But it's actually quite difficult to understand what it means. It means um, that we have a sense that things exist. Independently of the way we're looking at them, that in a nutshell. I mean, there's different ways of saying it, but that's that's basically. So that's the sense we have in the word. Now, all this bare attention and um, the kind of relegation of thought, etc., can can lead to a, a number of uh, outflows. One of which is we can also, in addition to what I just said, kind of have a sense of that the Dharma is the point of the Dharma, and where we're going is to kind of go with the flow of things. That's, that's that's and again, we'll come across this, we'll read it, etc., it will occur to us. And that things are impermanent, and therefore, obviously, because things are impermanent, we should let go, and go with the flow. Um, that, to me, is not the same as awakening. It's, it's really not the same as awakening. It's it's minus quite a big chunk of understanding there. And, there's a be- and many of you have probably read this novel by Siddhartha, uh, called Siddhartha by Herman Hess. Have you come across that? The b- b- beautiful novel, you know, and I mean, re- I found it profoundly moving. But his big kind of epiphany is sitting by the river watching the flow, you know, and in a sense that is the kind of fulfillment of understanding and, and going with the flow and letting it be and kind of not uh, reacting so much. <clears throat> um, one of my teachers, Ajantanisara, uh, Ajahn Jeff is his other name, wrote a fantastic essay, uh, this, I'm sure it's somewhere on the web, it's called, I think it's called something like The Roots of Buddhist Romanticism. And it's really, really uh, worth reading. And he he um, the, uh, un, un, uh, exposes some of the... Kind of ways that, in this case, Western notions uh, that happen around the Romantic uh, f- philosophers and, and later actually have found their way into Western Dharma. Very big is going with the flow, etc., like that. And that's actually not uh, what's most radical in the Buddhist teachings. So, this going with the flow can actually be given a kind of romantic twist, and it has a real heart pull. You know, Siddhartha by the river and that kind of letting go, and it's very poetic. Beautiful. It can also kind of be interpreted in a kind of grim, kind of basically everything's changing and deal with it, learn learn to get on with it, you know, and don't don't try and create anything more fancy than that. So it can kind of go romantic, or it can go grim existentialist kind of uh, deal. Um, but e- either one, to me, doesn't seem qu- like it's quite got the fullness of of what the Buddha uh, was trying to communicate. And to just say that, although it's, it's, it's a strong thing to be able to do that in the face of impermanence, it's, it's not enough for the Buddha to have really questioned whether he wanted to teach. You could uh, say something like that, write them on one of those uh, self-help calendars or whatever that you peel off. Today's thing is let go with the flow, you know. <laughs> nice, but... Uh, so emptiness, as I said before, is not the same as impermanence. It's saying something much more and much deeper and, and much more difficult to understand. So the Buddha uh, in the Anguttara Nikaya says uh, the Tathagata is another name for himself. The Tathagata when seeing what is to be seen does not construe an object as seen. He does not construe an he does not construe an unseen. He does not construe construe means create or conceive. Does not construe an object to be seen. He does not construe a seer and then the same when hearing, when smelling, tasting, touching, when cognizing. Whatever is seen or heard or sensed and fussed onto as true by others, one who is such, another name for an enlightened person, one who is such among those who are self-bound, would not further assume to be true or even false. Having seen well in advance that arrow where generations are fussed and hung I know, I see, that's just how it is. There is nothing of the Tathagata fastened. It's not hooked anywhere. There is nothing of the tatagata. nothing of, of one who sees that way fastened, hooked. hooked fasund. Yeah. With no notion of subject, no notion, not even the notion of a momentary subject, no notion of subject, there is no grounds for I know. I see, with no notion of object of that which is known, no notion, no grounds for quote that's just how it is. Clearly, this is pointing something way beyond the concept of impermanence. Um, Would you tell us again the source? The source, Anguttara Nikaya, uh, in in the chapter of fours, number twenty-four. Um, So, with a contemplation of impermanence, another word for anicca, the word that we usually translate as impermanent, is uncertain. Things are not certain. Anicca. They're not certain. And that also leads... There's a very beautiful level of teaching here. Things are uncertain, therefore uh, we can't be in control, and and, uh, kind of opening to that, and we can't know what's going to happen. But again, uh, this notion of not knowing... Uh, has again it 's one of these notions so what i 'm addressing tonight is our relationship with views and attitudes and, and where that might not be fully conscious or where they might be coming from so notion of not knowing beautiful and letting go of a, I need to know I need to know I need it beautiful but like all things can it go too much and has a notion of not knowing in the dharma been over elevated? Oh, it's like, it's almost like a place that we want to arrive at is not knowing. Um, and it's interesting. I remember years ago I taught a work retreat up in, in, in Scotland, in the Highlands, and, um, and we would have Dharma discussions almost every day. And at one point uh, one of the uh, retreatants said, uh, and he's actually a friend of mine, he said, why do we always have to come to a conclusion when we have a Dharma discussion? Which is f- a <laughs> fair enough point. Um, but it can seem that knowing, or arriving at knowing, blocks a sense of openness and a sense of possibility. It can seem that way. Um, it can also seem, and I'll return to this, that when there is knowing, the heart closes a little bit. So I'm just pointing this out, and I'm just wondering whether those things need to go together. Uh... For the Buddha, it's 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 a very different project. You, if you open the Pali Canon, you don't really get a sense of him elevating not knowing as something to kind of go for and arrive at, a sense of not knowing. It's quite the opposite, quite the opposite. And he's very big on knowing. And what do we need to know? What are we trying to know? How can I know? How can I know what I need to know? And actually working towards that is quite a different, um, again... Paradigm. So, in in uh, you know, communicating, teaching, <coughs> teachings, and things. One of the problems, and the Buddha stated it as well. Is all this is difficult to understand. Certainly, teachings about emptiness, independent rising, difficult to understand, difficult to explain, difficult to teach. You know, another possibility is that. Uh, And again, it's very common in in Western Dharmas. I just want to highlight a few possibilities. We get a little bit enamored, again, of a notion of simplicity. And uh, uh, that that's somehow inherently right, or the right way to go. And just wanting to flag these things. And um, ideas that can be expressed quickly, or zippily, Kind of can gain a lot of uh, momentum and weight and kind of authority that way. Ideas that can, because they're expressed quickly and easily, can easily get repeated very often. And you can just throw something out, go with the flow, or da 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 da. And maybe ideas that also have an intuitive pull, and they seem simple because they resonate with our intuition. So. <sighs> Danger, danger, and danger is a strong word, potential pitfalls wherever I go. If uh, I overemphasize or I dwell too much on complexity and intellectuality and precision, even as a teacher, as as teaching, there's obvious dangers there. We get caught in the mind and this and nitpicking and that. are obvious dangers. But there's a danger the other way. There's a danger the other way of... of, um, Oversimplifying, getting attached to simplicity, and in 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 so doing, actually to imprecision wrapped up in that. So, for instance, um, and I will we'll retouch this again: um, an equation of emptiness with impairments, or an equation of emptiness with oneness, um, not quite the full <coughs> the full deal. So, t- I find t- teaching trying to teach this stuff, that to be precise is is really hard work. I find it very, very hard work. It's really hard work to try and communicate things as precisely... um, uh, It's a hassle, to be honest. It's it's a real hassle. Um, But to me, that's what... It feels to me the most... uh, The thing that's most in alignment with my sense of integrity. Um, But to be honest, it's it's more work. It's more work to kind of... say a lot in detail, and, say, it's not like it's not, and, and actually carve things out that way. Um, I I could, and sometimes I do, and other teachers do as well, actually talk about emptiness, etc., in a much, much, much simpler and more open way, much more poetic way, much more kind of suggestive way. And I know uh, that, actually, that's a more popular way of teaching it. It tends to... Uh, people get less upset, often, <laughs> and less angry, and the, and actually the heart is more touched when it's communicated that way. And again, I'll revisit this later. Sometimes in trying to be really precise, something, for some reason, happens in the hearts of the listener, that actually it doesn't feel so open as if one just kind of said something uh, much more vague and poetic and left it quite open. But in that openness, there's actually openness to different interpretations. And people pick up very different meanings, uh, given the same sort of vague open language, and not quite, and actually talking at very different levels and depths of understanding. So that to me is, and I don't do it every time, but that to me why it feels important to actually try and be really precise. Uh, but, in that there can be sometimes a loss of this uh, kind of more open sense or mystery at times I think so i'm going to leave I'm going leave bits out but um the one thing I said last night with the reasoning, sort of analysis, one of the difficulties that we, I think almost everyone will encounter is is the decisiveness of it is troubling. That second step that I was talking about, that uh, if something existed inherently, it would have to exist like da-da-da-da-da, that's troubling, you know, uh, that kind of really, really deciding, yes, that's really true. Um... And in a way, it feels like we're pitching up a battle with what seems to be real, in terms of appearance and reason, and can really uh, rock the boat inside and, be, and create a lot of unsureness. Um, it's, it's interesting, too, because in a way, sometimes I feel, and I uh, I also read this in other, other <coughs> authors, that... Um, it may be some children you encounter, if you have a, you know, delightful children, sort of begin questioning the appearances of things and the reality of things. And it's sort of very free-spirited. And somehow, sometimes for some people, in the course of life, uh, that questioning of appearances actually gets a bit um, trodden on, subdued, repressed. So with... As I said last night, you don't have to pick it up at all. It's really, really fine not to pick it up. Um, but sometimes a person can think, how could it possibly be the case that the conceptual would lead beyond the con- beyond the conceptual? That the conceptual mind would lead to something that's non-conceptual, which is where we're trying to go. <clears throat> There's a sutra called the Pile of Jewels Sutra. And he says, uh, Kashyapa he's talking to this guy, Kashyapa. Kasyapa, it's like this. For example, fire arises when the wind rubs two branches together. Obviously, a very dry climate. Fire arises when the wind rubs... <laughs> All that happens here is a bit of drops of rain <laughs> For example, fire arises when the wind rubs two branches together. Once the fire has arisen, the two branches are burned. Just so, Kashyapa, if you have the correct analytical intellect... Uh, a noble one's uh, faculty of wisdom is generated through its generation the correct analytical intellect is also consumed so it has a way of eating itself it eats itself done done rightly so there can be and again talking about uh, attitudes tendencies etc views opinions there's there's a whole range of views about all this stuff all this stuff and and that's probably healthy uh, i think it is healthy but one of the tendencies can be a desire to abandon concepts that may be too early. I want to. I want to get rid of concepts. You guys okay? You mean too early. Too early in the in the meditative process, or too early in one's process oh. of practice. What? Too early in one's path. Too early in one's path, uh, or too early even in in a, a sitting or a meditation. But certainly, what I really mean is too early in the path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, too early in the path. What will happen if I abandon concepts too early? Almost without a doubt, I would just revert to my default concepts of what reality is. I would just revert to my... and I can think and have all, again, the romanticism of abandoning concepts, but sooner or later, and probably sooner, I just go back to my default concepts of what's real. So sometimes you see this in in, uh, practitioners or or this tradition. All this applies to other traditions too, much of it. Um, Someone says something like, everything's empty, Uh, all things are empty, there's nowhere to go, there's nothing to do. Um, And at some level that's actually true, you know, ultimately speaking you could say that's true. But if there's no translation of that understanding into the details of our life, if, if the kilesas, the greed and the aversion, etc., are still there, then one's using a kind of language of completion and having gone beyond. And it's not. it hasn't gone deep enough. It hasn't gone subtle enough. So what we're interested in, one of the things we'll keep revisiting on this retreat, is that notions and concepts construct our experience of objects. Notions and concepts construct our experience of objects, okay? Um, But that is a very, very, very subtle process. In other words, just dwelling uh, without thought is not the same as as being free of concepts and notions. Okay? I was interested in kind of worrying about yeah, if there are no thoughts in the mind, there's still maybe assumptions operating. Yes, and that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So there's... Sometimes I, you know, I read translations of Zen texts, and I really wonder... Because I, I, I don't know Chinese or Japanese at all. And I wonder if it's a mistake in the translation, or potentially a misunderstanding, or it's just that Chinese isn't rich enough. And not drawing a distinction between... Because sometimes it says, uh, let go of thinking or let go of the thinking mind. And to me, when I read it, it seems much more uh, deep and, and helpful thing to say would be let go of the conceiving mind. And just what Bill was talking about, it's like, I can be free of thought, and yet there is still the assumption, the conception of a self, of a world, of time, of objects, of awareness, etc. And I c- can feel very free of thought. Um, you mean By that you mean thoughts arising? Thoughts, yes, thoughts arising, arising. yes, and so thoughts can be free, I can be free of thoughts arising, any thoughts, but still quite a lot of conceptuality going on, and that, I'm calling it conceptual, I'm not sure if it's the right word, but that's what I'm using, it's a whole level of assuming... assuming reality to things as a given, taken for granted. And those concepts and notions actually build our experience of objects and they construct our experience of objects and cells and awareness and time and all the rest of it. Um, so concept what I'm calling conceptuality and perception go together. They go together, they're woven in together in this way. Very, very subtle. So we're going to revisit that big time on this retreat as a concept. But just... Generally speaking, does that make sense? But they're not thinking. They're not thinking, no. So I can be free of thought and still have a concept, a sense of me and a world and time passing and awareness of objects and all of that. And I'm not thinking about any of it, but it's there as a, as a sort of uh, base strata of assumptions of reality as, co- as concept, but not, I'm not, nothing's churning, nothing's moving in the mind on that level. It just occurred to me, so if, if you're in a walking room and mm-hmm. your mind is quiet, you hear the bell and you go for the door, I- even though you're not thinking door and so on, yeah. you know what the door is. Yeah. You have all kinds of assumptions yes. about what happens yes. when you turn it. Yes, absolutely. And so, on. Absolute. Yeah, and so and what's on the other side. Yes, yes. Uh, so all, all that's operating, and I'm saying there's e- it gets even subtler than that. So sometimes in meditation... One second. So sometimes in meditation... Um, You know, it drops down, you don't even think about doors. The whole sense of everything just goes kind of blank. And I would still say there's still subtle conceptuality going on, still a sense of time, still a sense of awareness, still a sense of me somehow, even if me has no history, no personality, no nothing, and a world of objects. So this is like, keep using this uh, concept of a spectrum. Spectrum. Spectrum of conceptuality. And it's very, very, very deep and subtle. And that's why the Buddha had really second thoughts about teaching all this. So it's sort of, is it like um, the mind sort of in neutral? The the clutch is depressed and it's sort of, no thoughts are arising, but Mm -hmm. but the whole apparatus is still there. Yes, exactly. So the mind in neutral is not really in neutral. It seems to be a neutral, and to, to a degree it's disengaged from a lot. But lo- as I keep using this kind of spectrum, there's still a kind of uh, subliminal, uh, l- levels of subliminal sort of engagement and assumption and conceptuality going on there. They're actually constructing our experience and our reality. We, we will revisit this in a, in a lot more uh, subtlety and depth. Um, <clears throat> but just as, as, a, as a point now, the point is, I can say, oh, I should throw out concepts unless I have access to that degree of subtlety and, and an actual ability to see that operating and let go of it, or question it, my idea of letting go of concepts is just a, a pipe dream. You know, it's not... Uh, it, won't, it won't address that really deep level. Uh, Awakening people still recognise doors as doors? I mean... Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know, I just think perhaps an important... Uh, to me, it's, it's an emotional kind of thing. Well... Those early concepts of self, which are so deep-laid, that's, that's what I think is very difficult to perceive and uh, uh, relax through. Um, but, I mean, you, you still see, you know, as far as I know, people still under, no matter how long they are, still recognise the door as a the door. They, yeah. they don't just walk into a wall. You yeah, know? OK, important. <laughs> so so a couple of things there. Um, this goes back to a question Nick asked a few uh, I was going to say a few weeks ago, it feels like it. Lost <laughs> <laughs> <Right. laughs> um, uh, sense of time. Yes. Um, um, Nick asked at some point. Um, uh, <laughs> so there's two things in what you just said, Bill. One is what we can call about psych- a, a level of, this goes back to the conversation itself. a level of what's hidden on a psychological, and addressing the psychological level. So yeah, we, we grow up in our families, we have these experiences and these ways that it didn't quite get met, etc., etc., or it was difficult with our parents, our siblings, school, and that can bury uh, concepts and assumptions uh, deep in the psyche on an emotional level that are very difficult to uh, uh, expose and, and heal and release, definitely. But again, I'm talking about a spectrum here, so it goes much, much deeper than that. Uh, Even two things, I say the most basic building blocks of what we take for granted. What? Space, time, things, objects, and awareness. Even those. Now you're quite right. Uh, Of course, uh, someone awakened or someone who's realized the emptiness of all that can still uh, perceive all that. But So it's not that we're trying to get to a state where we actually never perceive any of that and then just go around bumping into walls or anything like that, Could, obviously not, but um, something can be seen deep in meditation that exposes the unreality or the, the lack of inherent reality of all of that. And then that experience fades, but the understanding stays. So we can use doors, use this, talk about time, talk about self, but one has an understanding of its emptiness and it still appears. So that that's quite. Does that make sense? That that's really quite an important distinction. Sorry to interrupt. That's, it's more than just an intellectual understanding. Yeah, I will get to that too. Yeah, definitely. It's m- much more than an intellectual understanding. That's embodied. Yes, mm-hmm. but both are embodied. In other words, our default assumptions are embodied. They're not intellectual mm-hmm. assumptions. And and what we want is the wisdom of the emptiness of it to also be embodied and not just intellectual. Yeah. So, so we believe in moments. I believe in a present moment. I believe in a past and a future. I believe in objects, subjects, etc. And that's what we call delusion. And that delusion is the seed in, in Dharma saying That's the seeds of our suffering. That's the seed of dukkha. And so it is important to actually go beyond concepts. But the point is to actually do it in a way that's really skillful and uh, thorough, true, deep show sometimes, some interpretations of (coughs) teachings of emptiness and uh, Madhyamaka. Has John used that word yet, Madhyamaka? No. No. Okay. It means middle way, is actually what it means. Madhyamaka, middle way. And it's taken as the sort of highest exposition of the teachings of emptiness. And some people's interpretation of that is what it's saying is it's a kind of radical scepticism. Any view you have is wrong, and uh, all views are bad. And sometimes people put it in other truths like right view is no view. okay? And it's that kind of um, don't take up any view. The Buddha in the Pali Canon has right view in terms of the four noble truths is actually right view. And if you go into the meaning of that more fully, uh, his sort of full explanation of what the Four Noble Truths are, not really hidden in that, but implicit in the second one, in his full explanation of what the second truth is, the causes and conditions for suffering is dependent arising and a non-understanding of emptiness. So, even in the Buddha's right view, there's this kind of right seeing about uh, emptiness and dependent arising, in, in the right view. So... <clears throat> what part of the way we've been approaching things is actually learning to put on, to take up ways of viewing. Right? When we do the anatta practice or, or whatever, we're actually learning ways of looking, ways of conceiving, ways of viewing, but ones that lead to freedom rather than a repeat of difficulty. Does, does, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um so we are taking up a view. Uh there's two words in Sanskrit, dishti and darshana, uh, I read recently that Nagarjuna was actually saying that dishti, which is a kind of views that don't lead to freedom, uh kind of false views is what's eradicated by emptiness. But darshana as views that are helpful uh is actually actually stays there that we want. Um, So, similar to the Buddha's teaching of a raft, it might be that we even go beyond, at some point, in some way, even beyond the view of emptiness, or beyond the view of anatta, etc. But it's the raft, that's the raft that takes us beyond. And similarly, in that right view, and people teach it differently, eventually, or right from the beginning, we want an understanding that emptiness also is not something inherently real remember going back again some talks that emptiness is actually an adjective. So as an adjective, it qualifies something. This thing, that thing is empty. And as such, it depends on that thing. The emptiness of this thing depends on that thing. It doesn't exist independently of that thing. <laughs> do, do you see? So emptiness is actually also empty. Mm. Emptiness is empty. So at some point, or right from the beginning, that needs to be in our, underst- in, in our view. In our view, in our right view. In Dzogchen teachings, one of the strands of Tibetan Buddhism, some of you may have come across this, they talk about practicing the view or sustaining the view. And in a way, that's very similar to what we're doing uh, with, with the Anatta practice, with the letting go of push and pull, etc. We're sustaining, use the word view loosely now, sustaining ways of seeing in the moment, ways of looking, ways of relating. And we're practicing that view. Um, uh, impermanence, whatever it is, anatta, uh, because they lead to freedom, and, and what should happen is they unfold deeper and deeper freedom on one hand, and we'll get more and more into this, and deeper and deeper uh, understanding, and that deeper understanding can then become the sort of expanded or deeper view, which one then can look at via that view and go deeper and deeper into freedom. So that's why, when I introduced the three characters, I said, this is your avenue, this is your tunnel, it will unfold, that's what I meant. This is the view, I trundle along with it, I have some freedom, it starts to expose other understandings, I then pick up those other understandings, there's a more powerful view, and so it goes, and so it goes. So sometimes people hear teaching about emptiness and feel like I have to let go of the self in one go, Actually, impossible. Like, like some pr- intellectual teaching has been presented about emptiness and somehow have to throw it all out. Not, not possible, not even a good idea. Um, or, one, and this is relatively common, uh, one gets hold of the wrong end of the stick and goes about trying to stamp out the self and kind of blot it out of existence somehow. Um, the, the way that I've been trying to introduce this is in a very gradual way, that we're learning a gradual practice. Uh, this views that we're taking up gradually deepen a sense of freedom and uh, deepen and deepen, etc. So we're also in that stamping out the self or whatever. We're not taking up a view of nihilism. And as I said also again in one other talk, it's like be careful of when aversion creeps into this practice. Actually, you're trying to stamp out the self, eradicate it, or eradicate experience. What's happened is aversion has got hold of the practice, and, and aversion is actually in the driving seat in that moment. So when I used that word in the talk on three categories, I said holy disinterest, a phrase from the Christian mystics. The emphasis is on the holy. There's some, something in the letting go that's not a rejection, that's not a disconnection, that's not a disembodiment, that's not a, a disgust, that's not a uh, heartless nihilism, cold aversion etc so on that point side side issue ch- check check if this creeps in at times and more generally check if as i said in the opening talk how's the love doing how's the appreciation doing how's the contentment doing so, we, need, we really need to take care of these qualities on, on a retreat, on any retreat, on any long retreat, certainly, and certainly on a retreat like this. And just to, to check in and notice. And uh, different people at different times will really need to um, really take care to balance the emptiness practices with loving kindness and uh, some, the well being of samadhi. And really, last year I felt like I wanted to. Graffiti the wall with huge capital letters of samadhi and metta, uh, because it felt like so important to to uh, address that balance. Um, but needs needs to check. We need, as I said in the open talk, to be nourishing, nourishing the well being, and really taking care of that. So in response to what Nick just said, the problem is not the problem of delusion is not an intellectual problem. We feel it, as I said last night, on a gut level. It's a gut level problem. It's not an intellectual problem that we have. And if I only approach it intellectually and not meditatively deeply enough, it won't really transform anything. Again, I will, I'll have the right, uh, you know, teacher will tick, correct, uh, but so what? It hasn't actually transformed something and brought freedom deeply. And again, the default views are what will reign, what will actually be in the driving seat. So, again, I've said it before, but we're practicing, practicing shifts in view, shifts in the way we're relating to experience unfolding. We're actually practicing those shifts through the anattā, through letting go of clinging, through also the practice introduced last night, the sevenfold reasoning. And that unfolds deeper and deeper, freedom deeper and deeper understanding. So, for example, and this came up uh, in interviews today and also in Q&A uh, during the talk last night, this sense of oneness... That consciousness would be so beautiful, precious, that consciousness can open to a sense of oneness sometimes in deep meditation or other, other areas. Now sometimes John might say or I might say or you might read it's like emptiness is not oneness, that's wrong, da And a person kind of feels like <laughs> bereft or something. Uh, certainly the way I would like to emphasize is actually if you tell me about oneness, I would like to say, repeat that. Can you do that again? Can you get that again? Can you feel that oneness again? Can you have access to it and and let that uh, soak into your heart and the cells of your body? Over and over and over and over and over. Get to know that oneness. Um, That would actually be my my approach in teaching. Um, What happens if the mind goes in and out of a perception of oneness, oneness, normality, oneness, normality, oneness, normality, eventually the default view of separateness actually gets really questioned. A one-off experience of oneness probably not going to do much, but you go into it I don't know how many times, and you start to wonder, well, hey, which is real? Is it separation that's real, or is it oneness that's real? And, and on a really deep level, the heart really starts wondering. So it starts shifting and questioning the default belief in separateness. And that's extremely significant, because without this nurturing of, I'm just taking oneness as an example, that nurturing of a shift of view, we will just revert to the old default views which are not as helpful. The default view of separation is not as helpful. So, and again I've said this before, but emptiness is not a disappointment, it's not a teaching of disappointment. It, and, and if it feels like that, um, I i would feel that someone needs to kind of reassess or rebalance how they're going about it. It's not a teaching of disappointment. In terms of, let, I'm just taking one as an example. If that's the experience, then I would, I, I would never want to take that away from anyone at all. I would wish everyone could have that, but I would also say, you know what? There's something even more lovely that you can have as well, beyond that. So, this seeing of emptiness, this practicing of a shift in view, we want to repeat and see over and over and over. We need to see emptiness over and over and over and repeat that for it to make a difference. And at first it might not feel so powerful. You might have a glimpse of something or practice feels like it's when It doesn't actually feel like a big deal. Ah uh, We have a deep habit of not seeing emptiness. That's basically what delusion is, a deep habit of seeing inherent existence. And we need to practice seeing in a different way. Um, I mentioned this before. Sometimes when we use the mind in a sort of reflective way or a conceptual way, what can happen is the heart closes. I'm sure probably everyone's noticed this. Why is that, and does it need to? Does it need to? Is it necessary that the heart closes when there's uh, the mind is, is thinking and engaged in reflective thought? Um, you know, we have... Uh, intuitions and we have movements of the heart that seem to be saying this or that and we have um, the possibility of being pulled but also the possibility that we have predecided things that, that truths have been pre-decided you know? the, the Buddha says that this is the uh, Suttanipata, chapter 4, number 3 how could one led on by desire entrenched in his likes, forming his own conclusions, overcome his own views? How could one led on by desire, entrenched in his likes, forming his own conclusions, overcome his own views? Entrenchments in views aren't easily overcome. Entrenchments in views aren't easily overcome. A person this is significant a person embraces or rejects a doctrine a teaching in light of these very entrenchments do you understand what he's saying? so we're listening to all this through those very filters of preconceptions preconceived deciding likes, dislikes all of which can feel very heartful and very intuitive <clears throat> there are reasons why the Buddha was really unsure about teaching all this stuff really unsure um Nowadays, it's interesting, too, the whole notion of truth is very objectionable to a lot of people. And if you give truth a capital T, people will say, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. Uh, and people much rather speak about my truth. We can speak about my truth and your truth. And we can speak about, maybe even more safer, your opinion and my opinion, your view and my view. Um, or sometimes people say, it's all equally valid. Any, any opinions are equally valid. And, uh, you know, maybe there's reasons, for, good reasons for that in terms of humanity's history of religious oppression and scientific oppression, all kinds of stuff, and the brutality of all that. It's postmodernism, isn't it, really?
1: It's what? Postmodernism. Uh, I was going to say, it has,
0: it has part of its roots in postmodernism, yeah. It's also self Yeah. Um, but without realising, again, we take so much as truth all the time. As, as things like, as I was saying, the self, things, time, space, all that and also a whole manner of social conventions that we just bought into. So there was a quote uh, uh, Samadhi Rajasu, I can't remember which talk I gave it in, but if the selflessness, if the emptiness of phenomena is analysed, and if this analysis is cultivated in meditation, it causes the effect of attaining nirvana. This is the line I wanted to draw attention to. Through no other cause does one come to peace. It's a pretty dogmatic statement that's there. Um, and a lot of people would take offense at that. And again, there can be a kind of sense of, well, all paths are leading up to the same mountaintop. They're just different paths up the mountain. Um, and everyone has their own path, etc. But this can be taken, again, I encounter, can be taken too much to an extreme. So a while ago, I don't remember what it was, I was invited to a sitting group to facilitate a Dharma discussion can't actually remember what it was about, but what I walked away with, uh, somehow we got onto... It was something about what makes a path a path, what makes a path a spiritual path. And uh, people were saying, well, it can be dancing or juggling or... Uh, and, then, and then and this was like, anything can be a spiritual path. And someone at one point says, even murdering might be your spiritual path. And, uh, what's that? No. And... Um, <laughs> I have I have some difficulties, with that. <laughs> you know, in this. There's some. There's an excessive attachment to sort of not stating anything that might be exclusive, or or say that this is true, or, or something else isn't true. Um, that what, what's going to happen? That we're going to lose our individual freedom, or something. Um, so there's there's some, you know, really important capacity of humans to boldly question. And someone says something it's like, "Well, actually, what about?" Mm? Or something we've been so used to, either from our own tradition or from societal convention, to really question that, bring our our yeah courage and boldness to question it. But sometimes there's just a lack of integrity as well. And to say murdering can be a path is that like maybe I'm just not bringing my integrity there. Did they really believe that? It certainly seemed like it at the time. It was quite it was quite heated discussion. I was. Uh, I don't think they wanted me uh, to be so much in a teacher role, so, um, I didn't realize that until sort of reflecting afterwards, but it, so I was kind of put, leading people with questions and maybe offering a counter-opinion, and it really felt like it wasn't welcomed at all, but, um, uh, There is always ethics. There is always ethics, exactly. And, um, there... There's also a prison down the road. There is, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Which for a long time, uh, when I was on silent retreat for many years, I was always convinced was a, uh, a missile silo. I don't know why. Uh, either way, questioning the ethics. Of, but um, there is ethics. Yes, there is ethics. And, and um, the Buddha talks about, at stream entry, when there's a very deep understanding of emptiness, and that one's actually seen something very deep, doubt goes. Confusion about what one needs for awakening goes. And so it's very clear. Ethics is part of that. Ethics is part of that, and doesn't really get abandoned. Um, and one can re- reach a point of clarity. And people might object to that, etc. But it's there. Also, something happened here, and I can't again. I can't remember when, where this was. But I, see, as a teacher, I run into this all the time, and so people uh, object and get angry with something I've said or something someone else has said. And and there was a retreatant who. Very much in in the realm of no view is right uh, and and you should abandon all views. And when he left the Hermitage Ring, as some people sometimes do, he wrote a little note leaving the yogis and he said something like, um, we are fellow stumblers in the dark. And something like, I hope we together uh, continue stumbling and falling or something like that. And... um, It felt like, again, through conversations with him, that there was this attachment to, like, there is no possibility of knowing anything or a a right view and a wrong view. And and quite, in in his case, quite a lot of um, emotional attachment to that. So, I know that I don't know uh, may be important, but that's not the limit of human possibility. It's not the limit. And certainly the the, the Buddha, you'd be hard-pressed to find the Buddha saying that. Uh, And as I said again in one of the talks, the most important thing is, if there's a God, if there's a soul, blah, 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 is that it lacks inherent existence. And that we can know. That we can know. And know for sure. Uh, So... Without, this is a quote from someone called Dharma Kirti, who's also a very important um, early Mahayana philosopher, without disbelieving the object of our misconception, it is impossible to abandon misconceiving it. And this just repeats what I've said before. We actually need to penetrate uh, the belief that we have and the way that we're conceiving, and not just kind of not go there. Penetrate our delusions. Penetrate our delusions and really pierce them and cut them, yes. And expose them for what they are and see in a different way. So what what can we know, and what do we need to know? We need to know the emptiness of things of all things and their lack of inherent existence, all of which is another way of saying they're dependent arising uh, i came I was reading a, a great book uh, the other day and um, I, just I missed a whole section out, but it's probably fine. Um, <laughs> 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 it empty. We it's we know it it it's definitely <laughs> empty. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter. I was going to read you something. That I just thought I'll just throw it in now. It might feel random at this point, but I, I mentioned there was a list of seven. Um, I, I don't know where this is from, but it's a list of seven factors that starve wisdom or uh, give rise to confusion. I'm just going to throw this out there and not even comment on it. Number one, keeping bad company. <laughs> <laughs> number two, laziness. Number three, lack of curiosity or incuriosity. Uh, number four, distaste for analysis, not liking using the mind to th- uh, pull things apart. Uh, number five, we touched on yesterday, thinking you already know things and thus do not need to study or analyze. Uh, Number six, being influenced by wrong philosophical views. And number seven, we also mentioned yesterday, being influenced by thoughts such as, someone like me could never understand this, and believing that. So I just throw that out, and I won't comment on it. Right. But um, the thing I was going to say was, I was reading this book, uh, and uh, I can't remember where, if it was in the introduction or whatever. And um, it was actually a book on Zogchen philosophy. And... Um, and And the author that uh, I think is French or English, he said, "I'm just going to read this quote generally speaking, in Buddhism, the possibility of freedom is predicated on the possibility, means depends on the possibility of enlightenment, and enlightenment is predicated on the possibility of knowing ultimate reality, so to know what is ultimately true or real is to be enlightened and free and he says, in this respect, all traditions of Buddhism are essentially in agreement." I found that extremely interesting partly because, A, all those words, freedom, Buddhism, freedom, uh, enlightenment, ultimate reality, uh, all that, uh, mean very different things to very different people and different traditions. But even more significantly, um, what I see now in terms of Western Dharma is, and I'm sure even not everyone in this room would agree with that statement, it's no longer a given in Dharma circles. I've run into a lot of people who don't believe in the possibility of awakening um, for different reasons, or don't believe that there is an ultimate reality, or don't believe in all kinds of things. Western Dharma is taking a very very interesting direction. And again, I don't want to go into this. Partly it's the way that the Dharma has come to the West through the different traditions, but also it has to do with this inner critic thing uh, that we mentioned w- way back. And sometimes if that's too strong, can't bear the thought of some big goal it's too painful, because I measure myself in relationship to it. And so uh, let's just talk, and, and teachers will find, so just just talk about this moment, and just being okay in this moment, uh, because the pain of that, and then me in relationship to that, is too much. And interestingly, then a whole, kind of what was sort of edifice, root edifice of Dharma teachings actually gets uh, changed. And I see this going on as the Dharma is taking birth in the West, but I just find it interesting in relationship to what we're talking about. I just asked something? Um, you said something about... It's to be expected, no? What's to be expected? Well, this transformation of Buddhism, you know? It's uh, absolutely. Kind of known to be yes, yes, yes. In Tibet of course. Japan, so yeah. it has to find its flood. They talk a lot about what's the face uh, of the Western Buddha. Of course, of course. So it's not that it shouldn't change. It's, it's like we were talking about with aspirations. It's not that our aspirations maybe don't change sometimes. It's that, are we conscious of the forces that are shaping them? And are they forces that are, you know, that it's important to reckon with? Or are they actually, hmm, we've actually lost something for not such a good reason there. That's that. So, this probably isn't coming across, but really what I'm wanting to do tonight is just throw all this up in the air. It's like, look at all this. This is all going on without uh, necessarily landing too much. Um, emphasis on the pop, the pop psychology part of this now, the dumbing of it? Is it is it kind of like becomes, you know, you pick up any magazine and there is something about mindfulness? Is, yeah. it, is it kind of. That may be that part of it. Part I, of I'd actually not really want to, don't want to so much go into it right now, yeah, if that's I, I'm okay. I'm just but curious. <laughs> if, if there's there's a lot of factors going on, some of which, which are really lovely and important. You know, the meeting of psychotherapy and Dharma, I think, is really important and interesting. Um, so it's not that it, but it, it's bad that the dharma transforms when it comes you know transformed radically when it went to China and uh, etc and all that but um, it's just, just kind of being aware of what forces are operating I think um, again I'm quite concerned about time it's one, so it's quite a quick question you said something about um, if there was a god or a soul they would be um, subject to dependent origination yeah and uh, remember you used this word ultimate reality yeah um in a way which made me think you actually meant it. Meant what? Um, The word ultimate reality, like a reality which wasn't... Yeah. ...dependently originated. Yeah. Um, We'll get to this much more fully, but what I mean is the ultimate reality of things is that they're empty or dependently originated. Let's say that. I will revisit this concept much later. At this point, it would just be confusing. So towards the end, we'll revisit that. Uh, But but that's basically what was meant. The ultimate reality of things is that they're empty or dependently arising. Uh Okay. Um, so, you know, this knowing, and what can I know, and what's it important to know, there is, you know, there is, as someone was saying, there's a mystery in life, our existence is mystery, and there's beauty in that, when the heart opens to that, and the consciousness opens to that sense of mystery, and to me it's an extremely, uh, important part of, of consciousness deepening, and growing, and practice, and, uh, to be touched by that, and touched by, we don't know, at some, you know, what, how do we, How did all this happen? But even not even a thinking mystery—it's just a palpable sense of mystery. Actually, doesn't have—it's like something specific I'm wondering about. Um, And some degree of opening to that, or opening to that, I feel is very important. And I used to, uh, when I first started teaching, emphasise it really, really a lot. But uh, I think, although I feel it's really important, I also question how much freedom can be got just from that, just from a sense of mystery. So the Buddha talks about a very, very commonly quoted phrase, knowledge and vision of things as they are. Knowledge and vision of things as they are. But that things as they are is not what we're talking about right at the beginning, the bare attention of things. This is like this. This, this emotion feels like this. This is how it is. It doesn't mean that. It means things as they are, How is as they are, is empty and dependently arisen. So that, again, is saying something much deeper than, as at first, uh, obvious. it's not pointing to bare attention. So, so far, what do we know on, the, on this retreat? So far, what have we touched? We've talked about this spectrum of self-sense, and I think everyone's hopefully beginning to get some sense of that, of, of how the sense of self moves. It's stronger, more built up, less built up, etc., <laughs> yes. yes <good>. um, <laughs> um, we will expand this and actually say the, uh, we will expand this and actually say the world of experience is similar I haven't gone into it yet but we will the world of experience is also something that's on a spectrum built up or, or less built up Really, really. So self and the world built up and they go with clinging. The self sense, as we've said, goes with clinging. And I asked you one time if a lot of clinging brings a very solid self sense, a little less, a little less, a little less, brings a little less, a little less, etc., all the way down, how much clinging reveals the real sense of self? Now, we could take a question like this and say, well, it's unknowable, it's not knowable, but actually that's not the conclusion. The conclusion should be, A, that the self, and later we'll talk about the world of experience, are dependently arisen. That's the conclusion we want, not the unknowability of what the real self is. Do you understand? No? If I see that the sense of self is dependent on clinging, the more I cling, the stronger the sense of self, the more built up it is. If it's pancha there's a big self. No pancha, mm-hmm. less self. Uh, less clinging, less self. L- even less clinging, even less self. This, this, yeah? Um, the, and then I say, well, which is the real self? Of all those, which is the real one? The really solid one? The personality one? The psychological one? The, the kind of bare bones one? The one of, that feels like just a process? Mm-hmm. The one that even the process doesn't seem... Which is the real one? Now, the answer could be, well, the re- it's unknowable. But actually, the answer should be that it's dependently arisen. There's something very clear. Rather than a perplexity there, it's actually a clarity about its dependent arising. Self, and later we'll say the world, are dependently arisen. They're dependent on clinging. Isn't that the same as saying they were processed? Um Yeah, but again... Uh, what we'll see, uh, w- yeah. What we'll see is the elements of that process too don't exist. So you can't talk about an inherently existing, pr- existing process. But that's all part of the spectrum. We'll, we'll get to that. Does a fully awakened person experience that spectrum of self, well, not fully awakened but an awakened? Yeah. So well, yeah. Does a fully awakened person experience that spectrum of self? Yeah. So interesting question. You'll get different answers from different traditions. Um if we just take the Pali Canon, the Buddha talking about his experience, he would go uh into can go into experiences of total emptiness. Nothing is occurring, everything's just empty, everything just stops. And he can dwell in that and hang out in that. And then he comes out in uh in a state of uh you know, dealing with existence and doors as, as Bruce and all that. And um but his he would know that his self is empty, and that would that would, and so there would be a whole range of self-building that would just be cut off from his range. You would not expect a Buddha who goes into Papancha and kind of big self-critic uh, stuff. Is, is <laughs> <laughs> that that bit gets chopped off, you know. But for, for those who might aspire to, you know, have slightly less suffering, but <laughs> not necessarily believe they can yeah, get, yeah. Mm-hmm. to be a Buddha. Yeah. Do, do they? So you still experience levels of self, but you just don't attach the suffering to it? I would still say, I would say both. I would say that as practice deepens and it reaches kind of, uh, what's the word, Um, points of the understanding kind of precipitating shifts, you know, um, or just generally moving on a spectrum, two things happen. One is uh, that still some some... End of the of the spectrum itself just go, goes. It can't arise anymore. It just will not arise like that anymore. Um, uh, you know, the inner critic thing just doesn't arise anymore. Just not. It's, it doesn't. There aren't the conditions remaining for that to. Once seen enough with wisdom, that that structure of self, or very heavy dense, it just cannot arise. And no matter, it just can't. The conditions aren't there. So it's almost like you could say, the more wisdom, the more you're chopping off of that un un happy, solid end of the spectrum. You could say that. But you're also saying that the more... Or perhaps we should say the more time you have of a sense of the rest of it being empty. In other words, the more time you, you spend in moving in the rest of it, but knowing that it's empty. Yeah? Okay. Uh, so, we want to know... The conclusion is that <coughs> self and later the world are dependent arising, but also how. How? So, it's uh, clear that... Um, things, you know, the self-sense arises, gets stronger, ceases, dependent on what? And that dependent on what is what we're really going to fill out on this retreat. How does exactly this sense of self, uh, how do I, I, can, I can, if I have enough seeing here, enough skill, I can actually see how to build it and how to stop building it. And I, I can deliberately move on that spectrum. And, and the how of that is actually very important. And in that, uh, the the suffering decreases, of course. So in this question of what's real, and the sense of do we know, the Buddha talks about, and again this is from the Pali Canon, he's talking to someone called Kacayana, and he says, most most people talk or see things in terms of it exists or it doesn't exist. I teach the middle way beyond concepts (coughs) of existing and not existing, and that I call the middle way. Uh, and it's avoiding these extremes of reifying something, or, uh, or or nihilism, saying it doesn't exist, the self doesn't exist, a thing doesn't exist. Um, we will revisit this question uh, much more. So. Sometimes I'm almost done, but sometimes uh, as meditators, of course, in the course of a retreat or otherwise, we have experiences, we have meditative openings, or even outside of meditation. Something happens and it's a, it's a shift, and it's really important not to chase those experiences. You know, and you've heard this from countless teachers, it's really important not to chase the experience. But it's also important not to dismiss them. It's really important not to dismiss our experiences, our meditative experiences. Sometimes, in the depth of what's going on here, or in the quietness, or in the days, the nights, changes in perception happen. You know, d- different people, Loads of things are possible for the, for the meditative mind, for the contemplative mind. Someone, This is the ordinary reality, something shifts, and suddenly one experiences the nature of reality is, is infinite love, and we are all moving in infinite love. That's one possibility of a shift in perception. Or I mean, countless, countless possibilities. Could you give an example of what chasing an experience might look like? Yeah, saying I had this experience, uh, I had this experience a year ago, and I've no idea how I got there, but I w- I'm really wanting to get it back now. Okay. Um, the very fact of perceptions changing points to their emptiness, because again person going in and out, and I'm just choosing another perception that can change, oneness or this or that, person going in and out of this sense of the whole fabric of the universe is love. That actually is the deeper fabric. This is a mystical perception that people can get in, in meditation or outside of it. And going in and out, of, and, and will begin to wonder which is the real one? Is that actually in a deeper way more true? Profoundly touching their heart and opening, opening consciousness. And that points to the emptiness there. There's something about understanding how we fabricate and build the sense of reality and what we experience, and that's what we're going to be going into. I read the Dalai Lama saying, and I was talking yesterday about this possibility of water mixing with water and sort of going so deep into emptiness that there's nothing left but emptiness completely. And it's called a direct cognition of emptiness in technical language. And it's very non-dual. There isn't a mind and emptiness. It's all just fused. And he says, it's true that that's inexpressible in words, that experience. But that inexpressibility in words of the experience does not mean that emptiness can't be reflected on conceptually. Okay? So arriving at somewhere non-conceptually doesn't rule out the power and the usefulness of conceptuality in relating to things. I'm going to throw something out now, and it's, it's a bit of a preview to finish with. So John and I will be talking a lot about dependent arising. Dependent arising, and, or dependent origination, is a teaching that can be understood and explored at lots of different levels. So there's a kind of psychological level, of it's really important to get into that level and understand it at that level. But again, it's a spectrum, it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And in a way, to come out dependent rising, it's a set of concepts that the Buddha's using. They were actually, interestingly, concepts around at the time. And he just took those concepts that were in the current vernacular and kind of redefined things and rejigged things a little bit. So he's taking these concepts, but actually, it turns out that this wheel of dependent origination, I think John's already started talking about it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, first two. Okay, well... It's actually in the deeper understanding of it. It's not something linear in time. It's actually not a process that's happening in time, and it's, it's unfortunate in the way it gets translated because that's how it reads. First, there's this, and then there's this, and then there's this, is this, and there's a level at which that's true. But it's actually something that's happening. Uh, not even it's not even that's happening very fast, like so fast that you can't see. It. It's actually not in time. Um, when we talk about Dependent rising means that things are mutually dependent. So not only does this give rise to that, but that gives rise to this in the same moment. Something It's pointing to something extremely radical, extremely radical, that the mind can just about approach but not quite fully get its head around, so to speak. Um, so, for example, uh, just mutual dependency. Where there's clinging, we've said, there'll be more self. So self depends on clinging. But guess what? Where their self, what shows up? (laughs) What goes as clinging? They feed each other, they're mutually dependent. Um, It turns out that time, I'll revisit this much later in the retreat, time and the very elements of this process of dependent arising, the very concepts of dependent arising, are also empty. They are also empty. They're not actually real, discrete, real things. It's helpful to look at them that way at first but it's it's not a process of real things that is happening in time, which is what the initial understanding would be. Time as well is a dependent arising. And the very, uh, you know, things, consciousness, ignorance, etc., all that, too, are empty of inherent existence. So, again, I've said this before, if I don't... uh, if I don't explicitly understand that or make that clear to myself, there will be something I'm rarefying, and I can pretty much safely assume that. I, I can. That's the default way that the mind works. However, similar to the oneness, similar to the big love, similar to everything else, still having a concept of dependent rising as happening in time like that, real things happening in real time. Um, is still enormously helpful as a stepping stone. There's still a real degree of freedom there. So we cannot jump to this complete non-conceptuality. The the amazing skill of the Buddha's teaching is that he takes these concepts, he says, take this concept, that concept, and I present them in this way, and they're concepts that lead beyond concepts incredibly... Uh, the more, more, again, you just see the genius of it. They're, they're the set of concepts and way of using concepts. Actually, it's like, the image I use, is a snake eating its own tail and eventually swallowing itself. And and the the deep contemplation of dependent rising and emptiness is, is the same as that. Uh, it's just... It begins to... The contemplation of dependent rising actually begins to eat the concept of dependent rising itself. So the self can be... Again? self can be a dependent arising of your own awakening I don't understand what does that mean as in if you look at it in a nonlinear time sense mm-hmm. the fact that you're suffering in yourself is okay because it's all part of the soul yeah good good did everyone hear that mm-hmm. um, so April was saying so in a way, then, if everything's part of the circle, even the suffering of self is part of the circle, and kind of makes it okay. It's just it's just what's part of the circle. Um, there's a a level again that's a really really important stepping stone. With that that for a lot of people, that realization that you've just voiced um, becomes really powerful as it uh, opens up a lot of freedom. It's like. And I was just talking to someone the other day who's been, uh, you know, long-term meditator. just, ah, oh, it's okay that I'm feeling this. It doesn't mean anything other than it's just the wheel going around. And it's, that's all it is. And a lot of freedom there. I wouldn't, again, call it the final arriving point. But r- for, not for everyone, but for many people, really, really significant. Yeah, very significant. So instead of, like, making this polarity of, There's suffering, and then there's less suffering, and then actually keep trying to hold on to the less suffering, or a state, or etc. One just sees, well, this is just dependent arising doing its thing. And it's like, ah, self arises, self gets less, no self arises, self, no self, self, no self. Ah, it's all fine. Really, really important, very liberating to many people, but not the final. Because it's not that it's like a... I don't have a tendency to sort of judge where I am on a particular day or yeah. month or whatever. Yeah. And, and because that's what we're, we're taught to yes. see with education, mm-hmm. you get better and better and better and better. But mm-hmm. If you don't look at it in a time linear sense, you don't see total ignorance and total awakening. You see it yes. as a... There's a wave happening all the time, yeah. and you're dipping into either yeah. end of yeah. the spectrum. So, if that feels like there's some liberation in you for that, go with it, amplify it. You know, dwell, dwell on it, bring it in more and more to wh- how you're seeing your own experience unfolding. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, um, all this business of depenarizing something so deep, which we'll get into, uh, that it eats itself, so to speak. Uh, Hard to understand, hard to understand. As the Buddha, the this is this Nikaya, 72, 18. Uh, the Buddha's talking to a, a, a seeker called Vacha. And he says, deep, deep Vacha is this Dhamma, this, this truth, this teaching. Hard to see, hard to realize, peaceful and refined, beyond the scope of conjecture, subtle, to be experienced by the wise, for those with other views, other practices, other satisfactions, other aims, other teachers, it is difficult to know. He's, he's pointed something, well, difficult to know, as he says. But all this business, this uh, using of conceptuality at times in the practice, to go beyond, to unearth it, um, it moves to a place that actually... the. And even in the process, the heart can be very involved in that. The heart is very touched. It's natural outflow. To to me, Is a bowing. bowing. It naturally leads to this kind of veneration, deep veneration, uh, profound reverence. I'm not even clear what exactly it's to, maybe, but there's bowing that comes out of it. It's not leading to nihilism. It's not leading to stuck-in conceptuality or anything like that. Something immensely beautiful of the heart comes out of it. It comes out of uh, understanding emptiness more and more, and and this this uh, the radicality of it, the fullness of it. It's almost a reverence. It is a reverence, absolutely, totally. So sometimes when people first hear about emptiness, they f- the fear is, well, that means everything's meaningless. It means everything's pointless. Uh, I, to me, it's completely the opposite. There's such a, but it's not specific. You can say what you're. It's just in the mystery of that, and the, and the way it all eats itself, and. Uh, something extremely beautiful in the way the heart is touched and, and very, very deep. Oh, it's like devotion. Yes, out. devotion comes out of it, yeah, I would say. I would say. Okay. <laughs> well, I <have> <laughs> A very quick one. All right. quick I'm just that, I mean, it's not, it's not sort of feeling particularly um, kind of intuitive to do that at the moment. Yeah. I'm just wondering if I should sort of just yeah. try and sort of push that boundary yeah. or just, you mm-hmm. know, be comfortable with what's happening. Okay, could everyone hear that? <laughs> yeah. Um, if it's not happening uh, naturally, just leave it. Mm. Be, be with what's comfortable. Um, in its time, it will organ- as you know already from yeah. past trees, it will organically happen. Its causes and conditions, when they're there, it will. However, I would add, occasionally, you might want to, like I was saying, was it yesterday, uh, stre- uh, the day before, uh, stretch yourself sometimes. So it's more like, hey, it doesn't feel like it's going quite well, it feels good. like there's some dukkha, I'm just going to sit with it. Yeah. And, and here the pain comes in the body, here the restlessness comes, and just stretch the edges, occasionally, maybe once a day or something. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the rest of it can unfold, and it might be even that, that stretching sometimes actually opens something up, yeah. and, and it starts the unfoldment of organically without any pressure just we want to sit longer so really not a big deal and you know short sittings can be very uh, and I'm talking even really short you know maybe all of you know you're out walking and you just stop by a fence and you look at the grass and the light on the grass and something in two seconds uh, touches you way deeper than you know the three-hour sitting that you're hobbling away from (laughs) Um, so uh, long sittings sure an important part of practice but really can be overrated at times. So let it it unfold and and play your edges too. Okay, let's have a bit of quiet together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.